Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Celluloid Junkies. I am Luke Kane and I'm cloistered in an Ursuline convent with Damien Heath. Hello. This month we are profiling Ken Russell's disturbing 1971 political horror film, The Devils. Our third partner in crime, Cameron Crothers, won't be appearing regularly on the show anymore. Doing this podcast is so much fun, but it's also a lot of work. And after a few days thinking it over, Cameron realised that with his current schedule, it wasn't realistic for him to continue co-hosting on a regular basis. But he will be back now and again for the occasional episode, and we'll continue to throw shade his way, so it'll feel like he's still with us. Anyway, Damien, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Lou? I'm good. I'm a little tired. I had a really weird dream last night. Oh, yeah? The dream was that I was in this white nighty and I had this long hair and you were in it. You were crucified and you came down off the cross and like I, I wiped your I wiped your feet with my dress and then I like licked your open wounds and then you grabbed me and we made vigorous love on the floor in front of all of these onlookers. This sounds somewhat familiar. So anyway, I went to my local priest and he said to me that it's actually, you know, wasn't just a Freudian dream or anything like that. You put the dream in my head through sorcery. That, that doesn't sound like something I'd do. That's exactly what the devil would do, is deny it. That's what the priest said you'd do. Well. You got nothing to say? I got nothing to say. Why don't you confess? You might feel better. Um, my name is Damien, and I was born on the 6th of the 6th. Do you remember the first time your thoughts were turned to evil things? He plies me with caresses, lustful, obscene... He enters my bed at night and takes from me that which is consecrated to my divine right, good Jesus Christ. And what form does this incubus take? <laughs> Who is responsible for this evil possession? But of course I can prove nothing. This Mother Superior may be little more than a hysterical nun. But if it is a genuine case of possession by devils, and if Grandier himself was proved to be involved, then yes, I think it bears investigation, gentlemen. You've been a magician. If I'd got my squid devils, you face eternal damnation. Conjecture is useless. We need a professional witch hunter. We must send for Father Barre. By 1970, Ken Russell was one of England's most provocative and talented film directors. His adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's novel Women in Love the year before had been nominated for four Academy Awards. The film surprised audiences with its frank depiction of adult sexuality. Particularly remarkable was a nude wrestling scene between screen stars Oliver Reed and Alan Bates, which was daringly homoerotic for a movie released in 1969 but nothing could prepare audiences for the film he released two years later. Based on Aldous Huxley's 1952 book The Devils of Loudon and the 1961 John Whiting play adapted from the book, the film traces the true events surrounding a charismatic Roman Catholic priest, Urban Grandier, who in 1633 was accused of bewitching a convent of nuns and was subsequently burned at the stake. It was a story that, as author Bob Loza put it, could bear Russell's mad and extravagant visual style. But more than that, the director was attracted to the story's timeless thematic elements, and he set about writing the screenplay, with Bob Solo to produce the project for United Artists. Newcomer Derek Jarman set to work designing elaborate medieval sets, and Russell's then-wife Shirley Russell began creating the costumes. But then someone at United Artists read the script, and the studio pulled out. A considerable amount of money had already been spent in pre-production, leaving Bob Solo with no choice but to scramble around looking for another distributor. After four months, Warner Brothers came to the rescue, with a few caveats. They decided Russell's script was too long and asked for some major cuts. Russell begrudgingly acquiesced. He cast longtime collaborator Oliver Reed as Grandier and offered the role of Sister Jeanne to Glenda Jackson. 
She declined, feeling that the role too closely mirrored the one she had just played in Russell's previous film, The Music Lovers. The role of the demented Mother Superior ultimately went to Vanessa Redgrave. The film shot in Pinewood Studios in England. Production on the closed set was arduous for the cast and crew, who were tested by the grim subject matter and by Russell's demands and explosive temper. After a smooth period of editing, Russell submitted his film to the BBFC, who demanded multiple cuts to the final product, including the excising of the now infamous Rape of Christ scene. In the scene, the Ursuline nuns sexually assault a statue of Christ, while Father Mignon watches them from a platform and masturbates. There was a concern that if the film was to be released as is, Russell would be subject to Britain's Obscene Publications Act, and he and the distributors would face prosecution. When Russell screened the film for Warner Brothers, they accused Russell of not making the movie they had agreed on. After months of back and forth between Russell, the BBFC and Warner Brothers, a truncated version of the movie premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 1971. It performed poorly at the box office and received scathing reviews from critics who called it pornographic, sacrilegious and unwatchable. Over the preceding years, the film has undergone widespread reappraisal, spearheaded in large part by British film critic Mark Commode. The film exists in various cuts, although Warner Brothers have shied away from reinserting the Rape of Christ scene, or from giving the film a Blu-ray release. A Facebook page called Free Ken Russell's The Devils has close to 4,500 followers. 46 years after its release, The Devils is still making people nervous. So Damien, what do you think of The Devils? I went into this movie not having seen it before. I'd seen the last half hour at your place, uh, and it was uh, maybe six months ago, I think. And I had been absolutely riveted by that last half hour. So, you know, I knew how this film ended. And I uh, watched it in full for the first time a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this podcast. Uh, ordered the BFI Special Edition DVD, which is totally worth the investment. And... It is a brilliant, brilliant movie. It is absolutely stunning in every way. And I guess we'll get into that as we go over this podcast, but I loved it. Mm, I've always loved it as well. The first time I watched it, I found it very difficult. I found it very difficult because it's so unpleasant, it's so grim, and it's so vicious and flamboyant and odd. Uh, But once you get over that and then you watch it a second or third time, you really start to appreciate its merits, I think. And it's like any film where it's totally its own thing. You know, you have to kind of acclimatise to its rhythm and its language. And then once you have, you're then able to really get into it and and love it. And you tend to love those kinds of films a little more because they don't follow that traditional road. And uh, I guess a, a period film, you can get those period films that I guess are poorly made where it tells you everything that you need to know about the past, about what's happened. And then you get those um, period films where it kind of just plonks you in the middle of something that's already happening. And and typically you find your feet as you go along in those movies. The Devils is definitely one of those movies. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it still has uh, enough in there, enough information in there to guide you along the way, to, to give you your footing of exactly where you where you are in history and in the in the lives of all of these people, but it doesn't preach to you in any way. No, and I totally agree agree with you with what you're saying about how it doesn't uh, help you out. Like, it already kind of starts in chaos. Yeah. Uh, from the very first opening shot, which is of the king performing, and he's in drag, he's dressed yeah. up as, the, as Venus, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I love that. But when I first watched the film, I thought, what the hell is happening here? Did kings dress up as transvestites and perform in their own place? Well, usually, I guess, it's always been told that, you know, people perform for the king. Yeah. Not the other way around. Well, that's right. But I love that that scene opens the film because it indicates the gender fluidity that's going to run through this film. The flamboyance of it and the outrageousness of it is all there in that opening shot. But then immediately, as soon as we get into kind of the, I guess, the central element of the film, which is Grandier, we've got a town ravaged by plague and people are dying left, right and centre. We have the tensions between the Huguenots, who were the French Protestants, and the Catholics. So much history that, have, that has come before that we don't see. It's, it's, it's referred to and we can feel it. But, you know, I think for anyone who doesn't understand the historical context, which I didn't, it is, it is a little bit disorienting initially. 
And I believe, not having read the book, but you have read the Aldous Huxley book, I believe there is a little bit of artistic license taken in putting some of these events that historically they did happen, but putting them all together into this this story at this time. It takes um, events from a few years and condenses them into a few months. Well, we wanted to see the funeral procession of Monsieur Saint-Marc, Reverend Mother. Satan is ever ready to seduce us with sensual delights. <laughs> Your prayers for Saint-Marc will be the more zealous for not seeing his funeral. That is the strength of the enclosed order. Yes, I know, Reverend Mother, but it was a solemn requiem, and the Cardinal would have given us a dispensation to attend. The powers of your uncle, the Cardinal, are not in dispute, Sister Agnes. You are not satisfied with the contemplative life. You should have joined the poor Clares. Thus the victims of the plague scrubbed out their vermin-ridden hovels. Mother, I love our order. Then you shall combine the two, scrub out the convent from top to bottom, on your knees, and pray for the soul of the dead man at the same time. What would you say, I guess, overall, uh, this film is about? What are the most important things you take away from the devils? We were having a little bit of a discussion in the car. We, we, We drive in together to these podcast recordings, but we're having a little bit of a discussion in the car about the feeling of importance that is placed on a film that has uh, these religious stories, I would say undertones, but this this one isn't really an undertone of religion. It's the smack, smack bang in the centre of the movie. I believe that not being a religious person, um, having religious people in my family and having been brought up that way, uh, but not being religious anymore, not having any beliefs, still being that way inclined, you can see that religion, as well as doing great harm, can also do great good. And so when you get a movie that is able to be about humanity in the setting of religion, it just feels to me like it's so much more important. The Devils does that as well as Mother did that. And that was obviously Mother was our last podcast. But to do two films in a row that have those uh, those themes kind of brings that home. So that's that's what I take out of the devils. Well, for me, I think I mean a lot of people, in my view, falsely accuse the film of blasphemy. I think that the film is about the corruption of religion. It's not about religion, really. It's about the corruption of religion, and we see all kinds of corruptions. I mean, Grandia is corrupt in in the sense that he is using his authority as this town's parish to sleep with multiple women and get away with it, to get married. He, he, you know, makes all kinds of infringements. Sister Jeanne as well. I mean, she's Mother Superior, and you have to assume that there was a certain degree of cunning in how she rose up to that rank. And she was a pretty cruel person, by all accounts. You know, she had the way Redgrave plays her with that deriding kind of cackle, and she's very nasty. You know, the way that she... Remember when she says to Madeline, most women are here because their parents couldn't afford dowries for marriage. You know, ultimately, in my view, she becomes a victim. But one thing I think, apart from the corruption, another thing that I think is really interesting about the film is that it's about two women who fall in love with Grandier. And for one, it's this transformative experience that lifts her out of her grief. And for another one, it drags her to the pits of physical and mental despair. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we're going to get just a little bit, not too much, but a little bit into the similarities between The Devils and The Crucible. And The Crucible is another one of those movies where essentially the same thing happens. Yes, yes. Or I suppose in The Crucible, his wife falls back in love with him after not having been for a while. Mm. And Winona Ryder falls in love with him. And That's right. So, Luke, having read the book, you've obviously got far more insight into the true story behind the film. So I figured I'd put the movie in itself into somewhat of a historical perspective. Uh, it was the success of the Michael Reeves film Witchfinder General in 1968, starring Vincent Price, that set up the audience for Ken Russell to knock over with the devils. The film, Witchfinder General, like The Devils, was based on a book, uh, this one of the same name from 1966. The film was ignored by critics in both the UK and the US, but was a box office hit, and that was due to its unusually sadistic portrayal of on-screen torture and violence, despite already having been censored by the BBFC. However, these proceedings shall be carried out through due process of law. What law demands, we shall satisfy. You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Should you then sink 
we will know that your confessions are false. If, on the other hand, you are seen to swim or float, then your confessions of witchcraft are proven beyond a doubt in the sight of God, and you will be withdrawn from the water and hanged by the neck until you are dead. Witchfinder General, according to the uh, science fiction, horror and fantasy magazine website Moria, quote, created a mini-genre of witch persecution films, most of which quickly became nasty exploitation pieces that made a virtue of their torture scenes. Moria notes that Devils is the finest and most literate film to come out of this cycle. Uh, as we were just talking about, another piece of prose that came out around the same time as Huxley's book was Arthur Miller's play The Crucible in 1953, which has been adapted into films in both 1957 uh, with a screenplay by philosopher and novelist Jean-Paul Sartre and in 1996 starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder and adapted by Miller himself. The Crucible, for those who don't know, is a partially fictionalised story of the Salem witch trials in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1692 and 1693. In it, a group of girls lay accusations against many of the townspeople of witchcraft, including against John Proctor, who protests his innocence right up until his hanging. Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible as a response to the House Un-American Activities Committee and their actions in Hollywood in 1952, and specifically to director Elia Kazan's naming before the committee of eight members of the group theatre as communists, which included Lillian Hellman. There's significant parallels between The Devils and The Crucible, not least of which are the accusations of witchcraft, mirroring the accusations of Grandier being in league with the devil. There is also the power of the feminine group being led by the individual, and the innocent man or men being led to their untimely demise. And I think that there, between The Crucible and The Devils, is, is, is I guess, the great parallel between those two pieces of fiction, uh, even though thematically they're a lot closer in other ways. You know, in, in The Crucible, he makes John Proctor and Abigail this love thing. In tr- reality, do you know this? No. Abigail was 10 and John Proctor was 80. All of the accusations in that in that area in the Salem Witch Trials came from girls aged between 9 and 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is just crazy yeah. because I, I, I don't know any other time in history where we'd, uh, you know, take the word of girls that were 9 years old against men that were 80 years old. I think it's the result of what happens when you oppress people. Mm. So obviously women were very oppressed in that era and it's just a very ugly consequence of what happens if you spend you know years and years putting someone in their place. If they get, take an opportunity to be heard, even if it's an ugly, hysterical, crazy one, they're going to take it. Talking about the feminine group and the innocent man, it does work both ways because in Witchfinder General, it's the opposite. Uh, Matthew Hopkins, the real man behind the character, routinely used his supposedly government-given power to sexually abuse women to accuse and convict them of witchcraft if they were not subservient to his demands. There's a Polish movie from 1961 which is eerily similar to The Devils 2, directed by Jerzy Kawalowicz. Mother Joan of the Angels tells the story of the possessed Mother Joan and Father Surin who investigates demonic possession at the convent after the local priest was burned at the stake for sexually tempting the nuns. So that came 10 years prior. Honestly, we could go on and on about Psycho Nuns, which is a genre in itself featuring such great movies as Powell and Pressburger's masterpiece Black Narcissus and Fred Zinnemann's The Nun Story. Nunsploitation is even an accepted subgenre of both the horror and comedy genres. <laughs> Radio. I guess one of the big reasons why Grandier was an unfavourable amongst people around him was this idea, and it's set up at the very beginning of the film when uh, Cardinal Richelieu says to King Louis XIII, I'm hoping that we can have a successful, uh, successfully bring together church and state once more. And that happens over the credits, you know, and then you see this close-up of King Louis's face and it says, the devils. It's a really ominous, interesting way to begin the film, and it it very clearly says this is going to be a political film. Ken Russell was on record as saying over and over again, this is not a horror film. I disagree. I think it's a horror film. But I think what it is about is politics through and through. Absolutely. And, and I mean, a scene which I forgot to write notes on, but which is so horrifying, quite horrific, is you've got the scene of King Louis shooting yeah. birds, so you think. There's this shot of him and Cardinal Richelieu on the, I guess, on this platform. King Louis asking for, uh, I guess, birds to be released, then he aims his gun and he fires. And it's only at the end of this scene that you see it zooms out and it's actually Protestants 
dressed in bird costumes trying to run away that are being shot and killed. What makes it so horrifying is that he's dressed up the way somebody would who works at Disneyland in one of those big, like, bird heads. But, you know, you can hear him yeah. disoriented and, and crying and not knowing where he is. And it's really horrific that you then see him shot in the back and he falls into the lake and bleeds out, and it's very visual. I mean, just to give some context to all of this, so Protestantism came into France or through Europe in the early 1500s, and it heralded in decades of religious wars and infighting that ended in an uneven truce about 40 years before Grandier's execution. So when we see Cardinal Richelieu say that to King Louis, there's still this fight going on between which religion was going to take dominion over France. And obviously King Louis was Catholic, Cardinal Richelieu was Catholic, and Grandier was Catholic. But Loudon was an interesting town because it was about 50% Protestants, or they called them Huguenots, French Protestants. And really all this is about is the walls, the fortified walls that were built, which it essentially protected the Protestants inside those walls. And they didn't like that. They wanted the Protestants to be vulnerable. We get a few cutbacks in the film to seeing these truckloads of dead bodies, murdered Huguenots. So even though the war has technically ended and there's this technical truce, there really wasn't. There was still all of this, all of this friction. And dispatching Grandier is purely about giving France access to those protected Huguenots in the town of Loudon. The Catholics in Loudon wanted the walls as well. If those walls came down, they were vulnerable to any kind of foreign attack or threat. Well, I guess these days, uh, Loudon in the movie is somewhat of a libertarian society, especially compared to the rest of France. So, uh, you know, there's not any ideas of uh, Catholicism is uh, better than Protestantism in Loudon, but merely living together uh, for the sake of peace. That's right. And it was only a problem for the people in power. For the everyday layman, it wasn't really an issue whether or not you're Protestant or Catholic. I mean, it's interesting that Ken Russell says for him this movie is really about a sinner who becomes a saint. Simply put, Grandier starts off as this man that's a little bit corrupt, a little bit of a sleazeball, and in the end he dies a martyr. Almost reluctantly, but he can't help himself. You know, he, he's, he's doing what he thinks is right. He never met Sister Jeanne. Isn't that amazing to think? He never met her. The true sign of the devil! No! Call me vain and proud. The greatest sinner ever to walk on God's earth. But Satan's boy, I could never be! I just thought it would be fun to um, talk a little bit about the legal aspects of witchcraft. I mean, in today's day and age, it's kind of unconscionable to think that there was ever a time where we were seriously putting people to death or accusing people of witchcraft, but happened all the time. People back then believed that the devil was fond of doing harm through human beings because it gave greater offense to God to express himself through something created by and dedicated to God, and because it gave him more opportunity to cause injury to those around the possessed individual. Interestingly, the Grandier execution came near the end of the witchcraft craze, and it was cited by sceptics at the time and then onward as an example of the irrationality of accusing people of witchcraft. It was essentially cited as a big blunder. It actually helped end the madness of laws that pertain to witchcraft. Huxley writes that by the 18th century, witchcraft uh, had ceased to be a serious social problem. The physical tests of witchcraft, some of them are mentioned in the film. Well, I believe um, the Salem witch trials, were they the last witch trials in America? They were certainly near the end as yeah. well. Yeah, so that was, that was 1693. Hmm. So um, does the body of the accused show any unusual marks, like any supernumerary nipples? So that means Mark Wahlberg would have been well, the sorcerer. there you go. Because he's got that third nipple that he famously said, bitches love to suck. <laughs> That's your favourite quote. Uh, Were any parts of the body insensitive to the prick of a needle? Which is an interesting one, because what, do they think they're going to prick somebody accused of it? And and if they, I mean, they could just fake pain, couldn't they? 
That, that, that's what the thing you can go around. It's all circular logic. Well, everything what, with witchcraft. Is. I mean, the the famous thing with uh, accusing someone of being a witch was to to put them in water, and if they drown, they're not a witch, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So they're already dead. <laughs> They don't oh. drown, they're a witch, so we'll put them to death. If they do drown, they're not a witch, but they're already dead. We got that one wrong. <laughs> In terms of the film, let's leave the actual story behind. Did you believe that Sister Jeanne believed she was truly possessed by Grandier? No. And is that because she tries to hang herself and she says, I've, I've wronged an innocent man? I believe uh, is is probably less to do with the the film and the actions, uh, more to do with, um, I guess, our knowledge these days uh, of witchcraft and my, my innate scepticism about all of these things anyway. So I would never go into a film like this thinking that somebody honestly thought that they were possessed. I would always think that they were, I guess, trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. Yeah, but some people are crazy. Some people are definitely crazy, but I guess I see malice in there throughout a lot of the movie uh, with Sister Jeanne. We are given two secular reasons why Sister Jeanne may have a grudge against Grandier. The first is that he refuses to become the convent's confessor when she writes to him. And the second is when she learns of his marriage to Madeline, which drives her into like a jealous mm. rage. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there are there is cause to believe that she knew what she was doing. Yes. Interestingly, though, in the scene, which is one of the most amazing scenes where she talks to Father Barre about having had these dreams, and they're like, tell us his name. And she won't tell them his name until she's, like, given an enema, her genitals are cut up, she's horrifically tortured, and then at the very end they're like, tell us his name. She's like, oh, grandia. Why do you think? Why do you think she didn't just give up his name straight away? Why did she have to undergo horrific physical torture? Can't answer. I don't know. Is someone... Is someone holding... <laughs> <laughs> Are you still going with this <laughs> This play? Is this... Is, is it the devil? Is this another one, Luke? Has the devil silenced your tongue, Damien? Oh, gosh. Um, Aldous Huxley, in his book, he quotes from Sister Jeanne's autobiography, the real Sister Jeanne. She wrote an autobiography. And this is part of it. I just thought I'd read it to you. Ordinarily, the demons acted in conformity with the feelings I had in my soul. This they did so subtly that I myself did not believe that I had demons within me. I felt insulted when people showed that they suspected me of being possessed. And if anyone talked to me of my possession by that demon, I felt a violent emotion of anger and could not control the expression of my resentment. So I guess it's clear that she believes that she was possessed. Or that she didn't. The demons acted in conformity with the feelings I had in my soul. So if you're feeling that way, why do you need to have demons there? Can't you just be acting on your feelings? Like if I'm feeling angry... And then a demon comes into my head and wants me to act angry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's very odd. On another note, Aldous Huxley is possibly the greatest name I've ever heard. <laughs> Seriously, one of my favourite names. Did you know how many nuns were apparently possessed at Ludon? Uh, all of them. How many? 27. <gasps> Yes, that's exactly right. Is that right? Yes, 27. Oh my God, maybe I am possessed. Huxley writes, hysterical behaviour is infectious and her example was followed by the other nuns. Mm. But it's crazy to think that many nuns could be under this misapprehension. Yeah, but th that's, that's, what, that's what makes it baffling because there were so many people in the, in the witch trials that followed the lead of one person as well. Mm. Uh, I, uh, I mean, there's still cults around today. People that follow that believe that they'll be beamed up by a spaceship into into another world when the when God comes onto Earth to pass the final judgment, you know. And they're dead right. <laughs> well, they're dead. Ursuline nuns' possessions went on for years after Grandier was executed. And in the end, it was kind of like a, I mean, it was always a farce. The whole thing was a farce. But by the end of it, it was almost an admitted farce. They performed twice a day at specific right. times. 
and people would come. It became a tourist attraction. As Aldous Huxley writes, it was good box office. I remember you telling me that, yeah. Uh, was it good box office even when Grandier was alive? Oh, yeah. But then it continued to be good box office for years after. And, you know, it would be like, oh, our next possessed showings at 2pm. Come round. You know, they could, they, the devils could just come in on command. And so it's, it's like uh, to drive here, we go past the Gorge Wildlife Park. So every Sunday they do these, these things where you can hold the koala. So it's like showing up, <laughs> like showing up to one of those. It yeah, is. come and meet the possessed nuns. <laughs> and they're okay between those hours. Yeah, you know we've really tamed these devils. They come between two and three. They put on their show. They leave. You know, these accusations against Grandier they served two really important functions for French aristocracy at the time. The first one was obviously that you know seeing these nuns go through this kind of hell um, really turned public opinion against Grandier. And the second one was that many Protestants were so galvanized by these experiences that they converted to Catholicism, which is exactly what they wanted, you know, was their ultimate end game, was to change all these Protestants to Catholics. So there was great political impetus for them to remove Grandier. And they did. I'm sorry, you're going to have to remind me, what's the name of the, um, the main one who comes there to... Le Bordemont. Le Bordemont. Yeah. Okay. He is uh, just a horrible character throughout. You don't really get to know him apart from his being evil, his leveling these accusations. You get the feeling he might know that they're, they're not true, but he's going to follow through with them anyway until Grandier's dead. But I really love his performance in there. Mm. Uh, and I really love that documentary, um, uh, Hell on Earth, yep. that's included on the DVD because they interview the actor behind that and uh, I just really loved watching him speak and it's totally worth getting that that DVD for that documentary actually uh, the documentary is available online so we'll link to that in the show notes so that goes through the censorship a lot of the censorship and there is that scene at the end he's really good in it and there is that scene at the end where he does reveal his cards and basically admits to Grandier that this is all uh, it doesn't yeah it doesn't matter if you're really possessed no he says tell tell he says confess for the good of the institution for you know essentially for its political ramifications rather than because it's true he just says it even if you're not possessed or even if you don't believe you're possessed you can't uh, you they can't see an unrepentant person go yeah. to death yeah, that's right. And really, he wants him to confess because he knows that if Grandia holds out and doesn't, it's going to look really, really bad, which of course it did. And another another parallel to The Crucible, John Proctor, Leave Me My Name. Which is, yeah, an amazing scene in that yeah. film. Well, amazing performance in that mm-hmm. film. Um, you know, Grandia was actually tortured for a year. It was a year between his arrest and execution. Gosh. Yeah. It's horrible. And his legs, you know, the scene where they, his legs Ew, were broke? Yeah, yeah. That actually went on for 45 minutes. Let's talk a little bit about the visual arrangement of the film, because it is just so impressive. Hmm. Ken Russell said that Derek Jarman's sets gave the film a modernity. Mm-hmm. Modern, is that how you say it? Modernity? Yeah, modernity. Yeah, he, that he gives the film a modernity, and I really loved that. I think what is so striking initially about The Devils is that it is a medieval town that looks brand new. Yeah. I mean, it's got just those beautiful, sheer, white walls, and, you know, it, it looks fresh. It looks, um, it almost looks kind of dystopian and out of this world. Yeah. It's an, a medieval town unlike any I've ever seen in another film. Ken Russell said that there wouldn't be any moss gathered on the stone pillars and no disrepair to the tiles or the roads. Everything was new and they were proud of it. And with this instruction, uh, Derek Jarman spent three months building the biggest set for a movie since 1963's Cleopatra. And it's a series of amazing architectural buildings all paved with glistening white tiles and white brick. And what this achieved for the movie is to not only promote the city as a character, but to allow it to recede into the background as well, the colours that were used, so the action's not overshadowed. And it's remarkable that this set, which is truly something magnificent to behold, is not the star of the show, but merely a support. And that's the true mark of genius about Derek Jarman's work here. Mm. Uh, I love this set so much that I wish it was still around and had been declared a national monument so that I could go over there one day and visit it. <laughs> isn't it, isn't it amazing? Yeah. Derek Jarman had an interesting career post-Devils as a filmmaker of note in the gay community, being one of the few directors to make mainstream positive gay-themed films as early as the mid-1970s. He began with Sebastian in 1976 and continued this with Caravaggio in 1986 and Edward II in 1991. 
1986, he was diagnosed as HIV positive, and in 1994, he died from complications with AIDS. Prior to this, in the early 1980s, he was a vocal opponent of the UK's Clause 28, which sought to ban so-called promotion of homosexuality in public schools. And prior to contracting the disease himself, he had also worked towards AIDS awareness. He also did a lot of work in the 80s and 90s with both the Pet Shop Boys and the Smiths, including the Smiths video, There Is A Light That Never Goes Out, which is my favourite of their songs. One of my favourite shots in the film is the opening shot where we have the governor's funeral and Grandier is giving that speech and everybody's dressed in black and they're all set against this white palatial... And isn't it amazing that, uh, that they're all standing on the walls of this set? That's one thing that I found stunning is that they, any vantage point that they could get, and, and I guess that's exactly how it goes. If, if you see a parade these days and there's, there's uh, every possible good vantage point is taken. So it's exactly the same back then. You know, yeah. It's not just the people gathered in the town square. It's the people climbing the walls to see exactly what Grandier has to say. Yeah, yeah. They're all kind of staggered throughout this. Like they're all at different heights. Yeah. And it's, it's just very striking. Yeah, very striking. The other thing I love is the, and it's a very simple uh, moment, but whenever we see uh, Vanessa Redgrave through the grate, you know, and she has those few exchanges with Madeline, I think that there's something emotional about seeing this woman constrained underground by these... Mm. by these metal, you know, like like she's in prison. Yeah, because she is, she, her head is at foot level. And she's wearing this, um, obviously, this uh, habit, this white habit that is also very oppressive. I guess in today's society where we're, you know, women, women's equality is such a major issue, you can't help but be struck by that image and be a little disturbed by it, I think. Mm. As well as Derek Jarman and uh, obviously Ken Russell, I think the other major contributor to the visual arrangement of the film is uh, David Watkin, the cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Watkin had previously shot the Palme d'Or winning The Knack and How to Get It in 1965 and the John Lennon starring How I Won the War in 1967. And after The Devils, he also shot The Boyfriend with Russell and later he shot The Three Musketeers with Oliver Reed, as well as Chariots of Fire, Yentl, Out of Africa, Moonstruck, 1996's Jane Eyre and Tea with Mussolini. So with that resume, you wouldn't be surprised to know that he has won an array of awards throughout his career, including Best Cinematography in 1985 for Out of Africa at the Academy Awards. And his cinematography in The Devils is superb. Even though it wasn't recognised at the time, looking back, it's got to be some of the best work I've ever seen. This is especially evident in the scenes of psycho nuns, for lack of a better term. And the deleted Rape of Christ scene has a series of shots of the sisters reaching climax at the same time as the masturbating mignon. And this is made kinetic and frenzied by back-to-back-to-back, quick-zoom-in, quick-zoom-out, overhead and underneath shots in quick succession. And when I say quick succession, we're talking about five or six cuts per second. I would call this my favourite shot of the film, but it's not in the film. Yeah. The rest of the film is shot superbly as well, though Ludon is a masterpiece but it wouldn't look so good if it hadn't been shot from all the right angles by Watkins. By Watkin. uh, the juxtaposition of colour and playfulness against the stark, shining white really brings out the townspeople, makes them more than just a crowd. There's so many characters in The Devils. Uh, I think one of the great things is that I never feel lost, even though it'd be easy to do so, and I think a huge part of that is because each setup in the film has a distinct feel to it. We have to link The Rape of Christ. It's on Vimeo. Uh, Also on Vimeo. It's from Dave Evans is the name of the person who um, put that together and put it up on Vimeo. But he also put the final scene with Sister Jeanne and the the burned femur of uh, Grandier. I think the scene is really great. Absolutely. Uh, As I said, it it would be my favourite shot in the movie. I think it is stunning, stunning, uh, amazing work that they were able to get this especially in the days of film, that they were able to get these edits done like that. This is just like the opening scene. This is just as good as the opening scene of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But, you know, when I see, like, the nuns rubbing their vaginas on Jesus' face, I still feel really shocked. Tisolated at all? No. No, neither do I. Shocked. Um, Like, like, oh, my God, they can't do that. It is. Even though I'm not a... Catholic. It is shocking. You know, she's scissoring his the statue's foot at one point. Yeah. And and especially Mignon, who's Murray Melvin, I think is the actor's name. And he overacts throughout this entire movie. He's really good though, he's creepy. His, his character is so fucking funny. 
to watch, to look at. He's got this peculiar look about him. Yeah, he's got that bowl haircut. That, yeah, that bowl head cut, that, that pointed nose. It looks like he's had too much Botox even at a young age. But he climbs this ladder and climbs this wall. And there's, you know, just another example of someone climbing up to a, a, another height, a greater height. But he, he climbs this wall and then the only shot of him after that is uh, it goes to his hand under his robe. Yeah. Um, and obviously shows that there's this bulge under his robe and that's him masturbating. And he makes the funniest facial expressions as he's as he's coming but it's like throughout the whole movie he has been i feel like the most repressed character and in the rape of christ scene it is uh he's just overcome with uh i don't know how to put it but he's just he's just overcome with uh allowing his emotions his needs his wants his desires to come out yeah I think I feel like it's self-loathing masturbation. Yeah, like he's doing it, but he hates himself for doing it. But he can no longer fight the urge or impulse to do it. Yeah, so he he was obviously titillated. Oh, we were all titillated, Daniel. <laughs> Satan is ever ready to seduce us with sensual delights. <laughs> Let's have a quick ch- chat about censorship, just just briefly. I mean, this has been covered by. A lot of people. There's a great uh, podcast that the Projection Booth did on the Devils, which they go very heavily into the censorship issues and where you can find the best cut of the film. How do you feel about the idea that this film was... Does, first of all, I guess, does it surprise you that the film was so heavily censored and such a contentious issue? And does it bother you? So I think you have to put it in historical perspective again, as, as with anything. And 1971 is a very interesting year for film censorship. So films banned in the UK in 1971 include the Andy Warhol production Trash, which was the second film in his series with uh, Joe D'Alessandro, a home video release of Sam Peckinpah's violent Straw Dogs, which was banned for 31 years, and Jerry Schatzberg's hard-hitting drug story The Panic in Needle Park. In subsequent years, the same fate was also to befall The Last House on the Left for 30 years, A Clockwork Orange at Kubrick's request for 26 years, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for 25 years. So the infamous video nasty period was about to begin, and Russell and the studio really just did what they had to in order to get that film released. So Warner Brothers had already cut out a, a significant amount. They'd already made a significant amount of the cuts for this movie before submitting it to the BBFC. And uh, Ken Russell then had to, with the BBFC, uh, make some more cuts so that uh, it so that it got the X rating. Edits to the film include nudity in the cathedral and convent scenes, an anal insertion during the first exorcism, some shots of Grandier's legs being crushed, the pantomime sequence while Grandier is burning alive, then the rape of Christ scene and Sister Jean masturbating with the burned femur of Grandier. Does it bother you that the film got censored? If the alternative was for it to get banned, no. Um, it doesn't, and the film works brilliantly without the scenes that were censored. Yeah, although I can't help but feel that the film suffers for not having the rape of Christ scene in it. It does suffer. However, if we didn't know about it, I don't think it would suffer. I, I feel like it, it would still be as strong. I think it's a five-star film without those scenes in there. Yeah. Do I? Does it bother me? Yes, it bothers me. Any kind of censorship... Uh, of uh, a piece of art like The Devil's Bothers Me. Um, Any kind of censorship of, you know, a film that an adult can make a choice to go and see willingly bothers me. Do you think that its religious context is part of the reason why people were more offended? Yes. I I feel like uh, you probably have to be a a, a fair bit more careful when you're talking about religion. Hmm. When when you're making something to do with religion, you you probably have to be a fair bit more careful. You know, I agree with you because I've seen this film like a dozen times over the last maybe six years or seven years and I only saw The Rape of Christ scene last week. Mm. I'd seen little snippets of it, but I'd never actually seen it and it never bothered me. I loved the film. I've always loved the film. My feelings have never changed. I did see The Rape of Christ scene and think, gosh, this is awesome. Yeah. This is like, um, you know, we get we get little teasers of the nuns going loopy, but this is the, I guess, 
the big dramatic peak of that, mm. which is missing in the film. Mm. I think it does change uh, the character of Mignon, give him more depth as well. Yes, absolutely. I think he's probably the character that suffers the most for not having it in there. He does, because he has no other, no other point in the movie that is quite like what he does during that scene. Yeah. So apparently when they were shooting that scene and the other scenes with the Urshaline nuns, there was quite a bit of groping going on between the male extras and the female nuns. Yeah, there there are these, uh, you know, I guess... Like off-camera groping. Uh, But there's on-camera, there's these elderly uh, gentlemen in these robes who are part of this scene, and uh, I believe they might be having the time of their lives. Apparently Ken Russell served, like, liqueurs and champagne. And they all just got really drunk, and they did it. Any any nuns that agreed to have their heads shaved and their pubes shaves, uh, shaved got extra money. And apparently, as it wore on, as the days wore on or as the day wore on, uh, you know, those gropings and those kinds of sexual assaults were happening off camera more and more. A couple of extras and people like that have come out against Ken Russell and against, um, you know, the producer saying that they were essentially sexually assaulted. Well, in this time of Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey, it wouldn't surprise me if more people come out. This was 1970, 1971 when this film was shot. Uh, it was in the midst of the sexual revolution as well. There were a lot of changes going on in, in, in Hollywood and in, in life yeah. as well at this time. So I can't see this happening five years before, but in 1971, maybe it is still ahead of its... Maybe it's still ahead of its time, but it's the perfect, perfect time for it. I also can't see this film being made today with no. a similar scene. Uh, and and I think that is even seen that uh, uh, there's a Catholic priest, a Catholic, a Catholic father who's quite high up, who says that there is nothing wrong with this rape of Christ scene, and yet still Warner Brothers will not put it back in the film. And that's because a lot of... St- stupid people can't see something blasphemous in a film and not think, oh, well, it's blasphemous because it's showing blasphemy. Say it how it is, Luke. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, no one watched Crash and went, oh my God, what a racist filmmaker. Because the film's attitude was clearly against racism and, and hurt by racism. The Devils is very much hurt by religious corruption. There's nothing in it that is taking pleasure or glee. It doesn't it doesn't glamorize it. It's horrific. It's awful. You know, it's absolutely awful to see what happens to Grandier. You feel for him. And the last scene where he's um you know, burned at the stake is so horrific. And I loved Ken Russell. I heard him say about that that the the onlookers, the spectators they are there as if they're watching a football game. And, you know, they're, they're excited. Including Grandier's uh, previous lover throughout the movie who's, who's up on the, I guess, the balcony drinking yeah. wine and, and laughing. She's delighted. Yeah. You think they're all at a circus. Yeah. And, I mean, that is truly frightening. Mm. And I, I heard, uh, oh, I read in Aldous Huxley's book, before you start congratulating yourself on the fact that you would never, ever gleefully attend an execution, let me say that in this day and age for these people, this is, this is essentially what it was. It was a piece of entertainment. Yep. The man had been lawfully, justifiably sentenced to death. Well, that's right. And, 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 and there are less conflicting opinions back then. Not everybody has a soapbox to state their opinions. Yeah. Not everybody has a blog spot or anything like that. You know, so, so what, is, what comes down as a decree from the government, from the people in charge, is largely accepted. Yeah, and by the way, when I drive, I can't tell you how many times the wanker in front of me has slowed down to 15 k's an hour to look at some horrific car accident. What's the difference? It's exactly the same impulse that's driving those two behaviours. Whether or not you're, you know, from the 16th century watching a burning or you're in the 21st century slowing your car down to see if you can see a corpse hanging out of a car door... It's exactly the same behaviour, and I'm not going to lie to you, I kind of want to look too. Well, do you look? I mean, well, I, I drive past and I look if there's, if there's sirens there. Not, 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 not that I would endanger myself or anyone else, but no, if there's an opportunity to well, look, I do. I can't help it. Well, I mean, graciously, the Australian government made the law that if you're passing flashing lights, you have to slow down to 25 kilometres an hour now or yeah. you are breaking the law. So, 
now it just looks like we're all perverse people trying to see what's going on <laughs> because legally we can't go any faster. Look, I'm just going to put it out there. I, If I was living back then, I would totally be into attending an execution. I, I think that is just... Uh, it comes down... Knowing what you know now, I think you would not. If you had the knowledge that you have today, which obviously people back then did not have. Mm. If you had the knowledge that you have today and you are transplanted back into that time, I think if you went there, you would be absolutely appalled. You would be appalled at the sight of burning flesh, at the at what happens to this human. Unless they, you really didn't like them. Uh, so, I, I look, I still think it's too much to watch. It's, yeah. some, it's something that you would never forget. You know, you, you hear about police officers walking into a crime scene that is especially horrible. You know, it's, it's something that is life-changing. I ask you once again, where is His Majesty's proclamation authorising this demolition? For a common priest, you act uncommonly like a governor father. Where is your authority? Here, should one more stone be torn from our city walls, you will be dead before it touches the ground. How wonderful are Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed in this film? They are both wonderful. Oh, they are so good. You know, Oliver Reed, I've always felt, is a bit of a melodramatic over-actor, but I think uh, he totally suits this role. Grandier is this larger-than-life character, you know, makes these really loquacious speeches very bold and he just knocks it out of the park and then you've got Vanessa Redgrave as this demented nun and she is just so compelling in this film it's painful to watch Vanessa Redgrave in this movie Uh, you know sometimes I wake up and my neck's sore and so looking at Vanessa Redgrave with her head constantly tilted Mm. I'm in pain watching her and I'm sure that uh, made this more effective uh, Mark Commode, the film critic, um, and I believe he's a film critic for The Guardian. Yeah, and he's on. he has his own uh, show on the... He's on BBC Radio. Right. So he's one of the biggest champions of the devils, uh, possibly the main reason or the only reason we've ever been able to see The Rape of Christ. Uh, he calls Oliver Reed's performance in Sister Jean's Fantasies the best screen depiction of Jesus. And Oliver Reed once said of his director, Jesus is not Christ, only Russell. So these two have been described as the most colourful eccentrics of British cinema in the 1970s. It's said that they had a sword fight to determine whether or not Reed would act in 1975's Tommy. Russell won, so Reed was in. They first worked together on two television shows, Monitor, in which Russell depicted, re- directed Reed as the composer Debussy in the Debussy film, and Omnibus in Dante's Inferno. Reed then starred in Russell's award-winning Women in Love, as well as The Devils, Marla, Tommy and Listomania. All of this within a 10-year period from 1965 to 1975. And they lastly worked on a telly movie in 1991 called Prisoner of Honour. And without Russell, uh, behind the camera, Reed starred in Oliver, The Three Musketeers, uh, The Brood by David Cronenberg, and Ridley Scott's Gladiator, which was completed after his death. And he's also a well-known alcoholic who was prone to misogyny. But I guess we're not here to judge. And Russell and Reed has to be one of the great film pairings of that time. Uh, They were seemingly at odds and also in cahoots. So it's hard to tell which, but it made great art. And the other great pairing for Russell at this time was not with Vanessa Redgrave, but with Glenda Jackson. And Russell initially wanted Jackson for The Devils, but she didn't want to do it. She'd already worked with him on Women in Love, for which she won an Academy Award for Best Actress, as well as the controversial The Music Lovers and The Boyfriend released the same year as The Devils. The Music Lovers was described by Russell as the story of a marriage between a homosexual and a nymphomaniac, and Jackson had had enough of playing nymphomaniacs. That year, she was also to play one-third of a love triangle in John Schlesinger's Sunday Bloody Sunday. In stepped Vanessa Redgrave, who had recently been in other period films Camelot and The Charge of the Light Brigade, but five years earlier had shot to stardom in Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up. She's a perfect replacement for Glenda Jackson, and she plays the nymphomaniac to excess and delight. Her proper British voice is such a stark juxtaposition against the sister's actions that it's plausible she is indeed possessed by a demon. I can't imagine anybody else playing this role with such abandon. And that's one of the things that surprises me about this movie 50 years later. I can't imagine it being made today. If it was made today, who would be willing to play this role? And if we could find someone to play this role, who would play the other sisters, full frontal, naked and writhing with the statue until they reach orgasm? And Reed and Redgrave are brilliant apart. They're rarely together. Most often it's in Sister Jean's fantasies, but they're brilliant together too. 
Incidentally, the British Film Institute, who released The Devils on the DVD, which you should all buy, labelled the Russell collaborations, the Debussy film, Women in Love and The Devils among Reed's 10 best films. You know, Oliver Reed felt it was his personal favourite of his films. Mm. I can't stop saying, since we you know, started doing research for this film, decided that we'd do this podcast, I just wake up in the morning and the first thing I want to say is, Satan is ever ready to seduce us with sensual delights. Ah! <sighs> um, yeah, I, I love Oliver Reed in this movie, though. He's, he's fantastic. Fantastic. He's brilliant. Um, and Vanessa Redgrave as well, who... who has not really been in a huge number of mainstream films in the last 30 years, but is such an iconic actress. Yeah, I mean, look, she is just phenomenally good. Her performance is unguarded. It is so raw and vulnerable. You know, she's very unassuming. Um, She's not like somebody like Meryl Streep who comes in and sort of just chews the scenery. She's, but but her, she works on you slowly. And there's not ever a, a note wrong. You know, it's note perfect, Vanessa Redgrave. So my favourite Oliver Reed line. There are so many good lines in this film. It's beautifully written by Ken Russell. I love when Oliver Reed says, I was filled with the indecent confidence that comes with perfect coupling. There's a bit in The the Devils of Ludon, the book by Aldous Huxley, where he writes about Sister Jeanne's nature. And I just thought I would read it to you because it's amazing how well this mirrors what Vanessa Redgrave does in the film. He writes, Sister Jeanne was possessed of considerable native intelligence, combined, however, with a temperament and a character which made her a trial to others and her own worst enemy. Her deformity aroused in her a chronic resentment. Jean's laughter was of derision and cynicism. And I think that's wonderful because Vanessa Redgrave's very distinctive laugh in this film, don't you think that it is perfectly that? It is. It, it has so much derision and cynicism in it. Yeah. There's just a, a cruelty about her. Is her deformity the neck? Yeah, he thinks that, I mean, you know, obviously this was many years ago, so they don't know exactly what it was, but they think it was some sort of tubercular right. problem, like scoliosis. In the film, it looks like scoliosis. And you know um, that book by that author, Mr. Loza, who he wrote, he wrote The Unmaking of the Devils, which, by the way, I would recommend to anyone really interesting to read. And that's available. That's uh, on uh, Amazon as an ebook for just $10. You will link it in the show notes. Yeah. And also, he gives a really good interview in the Projection Booth podcast. But he interviewed all the people he could who were related to the devils who were still living. So he couldn't obviously interview um, Oliver Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he could not get Vanessa Redgrave. He said he tried for about a year and he kept hearing back going uh, from her agent saying, Vanessa doesn't look back, she looks forward. And she's still acting. Yeah. Today. Yeah, she is. She's in a film that's coming out soon. Mm. Take me out Damien, why don't you tell us a bit about the release and reception? Sure. Uh, The Devils was released in the United States on the 16th of July, 1971, and in the United Kingdom nine days later. The UK version clocked in at 110 minutes and 53 seconds. The US version was 2 minutes and 42 seconds shorter at 108 minutes and 11 seconds. It wasn't until 1997 that the longer UK version was released in the US. In the midst of the success of such films as The French Connection and A Clockwork Orange, The Devils was given a huge budget. It's difficult to find, but uh, I, I estimate it to be about $12.5 million. It's pretty much impossible to come up with box office figures for The Devils, unfortunately. I mean, half the fucking movie is gone, so the data isn't likely to exist either. The most useful data I could find is that it drew 1.26 million admissions in France, which ranked it the 31st most successful film that year in that country. It also drew 147,000 in Sweden. So if we extrapolate those to worldwide earnings, I'd say we're looking at about 5 to $10 million, which is a pretty wide gap, but that's the best I can do. So clearly against its budget, it bombed. The Devils followed just two years after Russell's Women in Love, which got the Director and Academy Award nomination for Best Director. That would be his only such nomination by the Academy. But the US National Board of Review did give Russell the Best Director Award in 1971, a co-win for The Devils and his other film, The Boyfriend. The film also won Best Foreign Film at the Venice Film Festival. 
That was about all the success it had, though. Contemporary reviews trended towards the negative. Here's some of the worst quotables. As if the story weren't bizarre enough, Russell has spared nothing in hyping the historic events by stressing the grisly at the expense of dramatic unity variety. Russell's swirling, multicoloured puddle made me glad that both Huxley and Whiting are dead so that they are spared this farrago of witless exhibitionism. Stanley Kaufman, The New Republic. And the famous Alexander Walker review from the Evening Standard, uh, which copped him an Evening Standard newspaper over the head when him and Ken Russell appeared on the same talk show later that year, said, A garish glossary of sadomasochism, a taste for visual sensation that makes scene after scene look like the masturbatory fantasies of a Roman Catholic boyhood. Roger Ebert's review for the Chicago Sun-Times went unrated, but he gave it a thumbs down and wrote a bit of a sarcastic piece. He finished with... And it took courage for all those folks to congregate in the lobby and lounge of the cinema before, during and after the performance. They were ordinary kids, students, young folks mostly, you might find living next door, and yet they had gone out into the night to see for themselves so that the martyrs of Ludon might not go unmourned. Now they spoke quietly among themselves of the atrocities they had witnessed. Listening to them, I felt we could all sleep a little sounder from now on. If the movie industry had more hard-nosed, tell-it-like-it-is artists like Ken Russell, Ludon might never happen again. And Vincent Camby was the film critic for the New York Times, and he did not like this movie one bit, stating, It's a see-through movie composed of a lot of clanking, silly, melodramatic effects that, like rib-tickling, exhaust you without providing particular pleasure to say nothing of enlightenment. A movie that opens with Louis XIII dressed as Botticelli's Venus emerging from a half-shell is obviously a movie less interested in coherent thought than in spectacle. This includes crucifixion fantasies in which Sister Jeanne sees herself licking the blood off Grandier's hands, exorcism by enema, tortures, vomiting and the final immolation. The Devils is so concerned with the look of these experiences that it ultimately diminishes their meaning and, in turn, the meaning of the lives of the people who lived them. So, reading these reviews makes me wonder why a critic would get into that field only to frown upon originality and invention. To make no mention of the performances of Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave is unforgivable enough, but many of these reviews make unprofessional personal attacks on Ken Russell. And to each of these critics that I've mentioned, I say, fuck you. I'd rather be standing alongside Russell in league with the devil if this is the alternative. Damien, could you not be so evasive? Could you sort of tell us what you really think? This is the first time I've uh, taken offence at negative reviews of one of the movies that we've been talking about, I think. Interesting that we're doing this film just after having spoken about Mother, which was another widely critically misunderstood film. Yeah, critically misunderstood. That's a good way of putting it. If you can't see Mother, if you're a film critic who can't see Mother these days and couldn't see The Devils back in 1971 and understand that what you are witnessing is brilliance, you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy to look at The Devils now with all of its originality and its boldness and the beautiful writing, the incredible electric performances, and not find any of its merits. I can't help but think that some of this is due to, I guess, Women in Love got a lot of of good reviews and it got a lot of buzz, Mm. uh, a lot of critical buzz. And the music lovers was so polarising the year after that and the year before The Devils that The Devils suffered as a consequence of that. Yeah. And Ken Russell, maybe he had uh, detractors and enemies in the, in the industry. And after this film, he would make The Boyfriend, which was a real light, fluffy musical film. But it was a disaster, mm. critically and commercially. I think that the reaction that Ken Russell got to The Devils really shattered him. And I think that it might have shattered his confidence a little bit in the same way that I think John Carpenter was really shattered by the reviews for The Thing, which is another really great, brilliant film that didn't get the attention it deserved, you know, and actually had a lot of scorn and spite, which was unwarranted. It's really sad to see these directors create something wonderful, be brought down by, I guess, the critical intelligentsia. It builds or, or creates an insecurity that's then reflected in their subsequent film. Yeah. And, I mean, look, even, even Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange that same year had some of that same feedback. Yeah. This is like, you know, going to the movies these days and saying, Mother is not worth your time or your money, but, but Wonder Woman is. This is just wrong. In terms of entertainment, yeah, go and see Wonder Woman. 
if you want to be if you want to be brain dead not having to think about a movie go and see wonder woman it would be great fun and and it probably is but if 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 you want to see something that's original that's inventive that is different that is spectacular don't go and see wonder woman it's the same as every other fucking movie out there go and see mother so damien um are you ready to quiz yeah let's do it all right i'm gonna fuck you up no you're not i'm not i'm not confident look you've never done a quiz after this, you wish you'll never started. I know, I'm really nervous. You wish you'll never started? All right, so... I'm trying um, to trash talk and I fucked that up Let too. me go first and you go and then I okay. go. Okay. So it's three questions each. Okay. Did Ken Russell go to Ludon before or after the making of The Devils or did he never go? Never. That's right. One and, for you. And uh, I know, I, I, well, I assumed that, I didn't know that, but I assumed that because uh, he shot it on a soundstage, which Vanessa Redgrave was so against. Yeah. Yeah. She wanted to shoot at Ludon. Yeah. Uh, in which European country was the Devil's Band and stars Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave threatened with three years jail time if they entered the country? Italy. Yes. <laughs> One for me. Okay. Um, what film provided the inspiration for Derek Jarman's set design on the Devil's? Metropolis. Very good. That was my next question. <laughs> um, okay. Two for you, one for me. Are we doing three each? Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to put this question in because you've already answered it earlier, but I've only got four questions here and you've <laughs> used up one of mine. Okay. Uh, true or false, this is Oliver Reed's favourite of his own movies. Mm, true. Two each. Okay. Um, which British law firm insured Oliver Reed's eyebrows? Lloyd's of London? Yes! Oh! oh, my God. Okay, so you've gotten three out of three, so now you need my third question. Who was the famous British comedian noted as a major inspiration for the formation of the Monty Python comedy troupe who had a scene in The Devils which was ultimately cut? Oh, my God. I have no idea. Oh, well, it wouldn't have been John Cleese. I can't think of any of the other names. Not a member of uh, Monty Python, but... A, a famous British comedian who was a major inspiration for the formation of Monty Python. I don't know. I'm going to have to say I don't know. Spike Milligan. Oh, I never would have got that. <laughs> Good Lord. All right, Damien. Final thoughts. Oh, by the way, we should just say Damien won that quiz. There we go. Yes. <laughs> I was hoping I could gloss right through it. So, uh, final thoughts on The Devils, Damien? Uh, my final thoughts are a star rating, and that's five stars. Mm -hmm. Spectacular movie. Yeah, look, I agree. I think it is just an amazing film about corruption. It could not be more relevant to today. Um, you can see why it appealed to Russell in 1971. You can see why it's worth talking about today in 2017. Uh, we still see all kinds of gross corruptions going on in our society. And this uh, film is a very, very violent and very uh, impacting statement on how it's done and uh, on why it, it is the root evil of the world. You know, watching Grandier get persecuted and die is absolutely wrenching and Vanessa Redgrave being used as a tool by his political opponents for gamesmanship over him is just incredibly difficult. I think it's a five-star movie. It's brilliant visually in terms of the writing, in terms of performances. Everyone is at the top of their game. Five stars. And that's it for Cellular Junkies this month. Uh, join us in December. We're going to welcome Cassandra Kane back to the show to discuss a very polarizing film from the 70s. We're going to look at Frank Pearson's 1976 musical romantic drama, A Star is Born. At least Frank Pearson's name appears as director, but, you know, it was probably more Barbara Streisand by all accounts. Until then, we recommend that you avoid all contact with any sexually hysterical nuns because you never know how seriously people might take their loopy accusations. Be safe and well, and that's all from us. Goodbye. So you know, John, 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 John.